The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thank you all for, for coming today. I, I think it really is appropriate in some ways that I'm speaking on Election Day because as Steve said, China has become a sort of front and center issue for all of us. And in some ways it's become a touchstone for various concerns that many of us have about uh, our own society and our own trajectory of development and our own sustainability as an economy, as a, as a country, and as a society. You can see the title of the book, um, but I'm not here to tell you that uh, everything's fine and uh, there's no need to worry, so just uh, you know, take it easy and go home and we're all going to live happily. That's, that's really not the point. And it's not so easy really to make that argument. There are many day-to-day issues that you all know about, some on the economic front, some on the geopolitical front, many day-to-day issues between China and the United States, China and other countries, that are flashpoints and that will continue to be flashpoints. They've been flashpoints in the past. They will continue to be here in the future. What concerns me, however, or what I hope to do today, really, is not to dismiss those flashpoints, but rather to speak to the way that we frame the issue of China's development and the relationship of China's development to what goes on here in the United States. In other words, what concerns me is not the interpretation of the day-to-day issues, but the broader framing within which we place those broader issues. So I don't want to create a bunch of straw men type arguments, but let me just try to characterize what I think some of the framing has been in the political debate and in the social discussion here in the United States about China. I think there are at least two main pieces of the framing. The first piece of the framing is really about the nature of China's political economy. And that piece says that China has developed and changed, developed rapidly economically and changed economically, but it really hasn't changed politically. And and therefore we have this strange juxtaposition of a retrograde, dinosaur-like political system and a sort of wildly dynamic economic system. And that's challenging to us in some ways and threatening to us because it feels very different from our system. Maybe we look at that split between politics and economics and dismiss that case, that dinosaur, as doomed to be a dinosaur, doomed to disappear. Or alternatively, we look at this as something different that is a challenge to our own own norms, our own rules, and also our, our own vitality as an economy. And that gets to the second framing assumption, which I think is is widespread in the debate on all sides. And that second framing assumption says that the way to think about global economics, including China, but the way to think about global economics is in terms of basically autonomous national economies that have their own firms, their own firms contained within those economies, and those firms then compete head-to-head in the global marketplace, and by extension the nations compete head-to-head in a somewhat zero-sum sense. Uh, I would say there are good reasons to think geopolitically about a number of issues, some of which have been in the news in recent years. But I think, broadly speaking, those two framing assumptions, the one about politics and economics in China and the one about geopolitical competition, those framing assumptions are disconnected from the reality 
of the way much global commerce and production really works. They're disconnected from the reality of China in many ways, but they're also disconnected from the reality of how our own, how our own economy works and how our own economy competes. To put it a little bit more specifically, I think that both of these framing assumptions ignore a sort of industrial revolution that we are living in today. It's a very confusing industrial revolution. It's a very dislocating revolution, as all industrial revolutions inevitably are, proven to be historically. But it's one that somehow is happening around us, but often doesn't find its way directly into the political debate. So let me stop talking about abstractions and move into a, a few concrete examples to illustrate the point. So I was looking, I was rummaging through my bag to look for a, a slightly different prop, the power supply for my computer. We'll get to that, but let's, let's start with uh, this prop. This is uh, not a commercial for this particular product. It happens to be an Apple product. But, so if I think about this product, this happens to be an iPhone, uh, one way to look at this product is as a symbol of the hollowing out of the American economy. I mean, here you have a product that's, yeah, I mean, it's an Apple product branded by Apple, but Apple doesn't make this product. This is a made in China product. It's a manufactured in China product, at least in one perspective. It's a manufactured product, manufactured in China product. And it says everything about the migration of core production activities to the Chinese economy and out of the U.S. economy. Well, I'd say that that's not exactly accurate. Instead, what's happened is that the production of products like this and many other kinds of products, the production of products like this has in some sense been exploded and deverticalized so that you have a series of components produced by a series of different companies in a series of different countries and those components and designs all somehow have to come together into a product. And in a way, because so many different companies and in so many different countries are producing this product, although we see and feel and use this product as if it's a coherent entity, it is a coherent entity, in some ways this is more reflective of a complex system, something we'd associate with a complex energy system with power generation and energy transmission and a, a, a distribution. In some ways today in the current industrial revolution, this looks more like an energy type system than a traditional product made by a single, single company. So even if we look at this product, uh, it happens to be assembled in China. There's a controller chip in here that's a U.S. design, although there's some licensing to a British chip designer. The One of at least the main chips in here is fabbed, uh, not in China, but in Silicon Valley. Um, then uh, you have a screen, a display that's done in Japan. You have a hard drive that's done by a Japanese company, although the hard drive is assembled in China. And then you have a bunch of assembly operations in China which have to put this thing together. Where is the value created primarily? Well, we can have a debate about that. Where is the knowledge transferred? Well, we can have a debate about that too. But for sure, this is not a Chinese product any more than it's simply an American product anymore. It's extremely difficult to put a flag on this kind of product. So this is a, this is a high-end kind of product. But even if you take a low-end product like the power supply for my computer, the absolute, in some sense, lowest-end component 
of a laptop, something that most of my engineering type students at MIT, they have no interest working in, even that very low-end component, which is assembled in China, has a US-designed chip, because it's a very electronics-intensive component. It has a US-designed chip and a US-fat chip. In other words, a, a US-manufactured chip that goes into that, into that product. So what kinds of conclusions or lessons can we draw from that? And then, and then we'll talk a little bit about what that has to do with China. So one of the important lessons of that kind of deverticalization and fragmentation that's been facilitated basically by technology, technology that allows us to codify information and send information um, inexpensively across great distances, basically the innovations that allow us to email and, and uh, communicate in the way we do today. These kinds, of, these kinds of technological changes have facilitated a different way of producing globally. There are some costs to that mode of production. Many people think the primary cost is the migration of jobs from outsourcing. Um, I don't think that's the primary social cost, at least in the United States. The number of jobs that have been outsourced to other countries pales in comparison to the number of manufacturing jobs that have been replaced by technology. So the ability to take vast amounts of knowledge, which used to be held tacitly by individual workers who would bend a piece of metal, we can take that complex knowledge today and embed it in a machine and program that machine to bend a piece of metal or fabric it. That leads to phenomenal productivity increases. America's share of global manufacturing output has declined only slightly really in the last few decades. The share of employment in manufacturing, however, in the United States, has plummeted. The same time productivity has increased. Interestingly, in China, most employment generation isn't in manufacturing. In fact, when you go to higher-end facilities in China, you don't see that many employees, including in the factories, that do this. Instead, job creation has been primarily in China in services, construction, um, activities like that. So there's a series of dislocations that happen because of technology, undoubtedly, but there are also upsides. And one of the key upsides is that when manufacturing is dispersed among a number of different companies that are each focusing in a highly specialized fashion on producing individual modules, companies can innovate simply in the module. They can innovate on the screen, part of this product. They can innovate on the software of this product. They can innovate in some of the chip designs in this product. When companies can innovate in those individual pieces, that tends to speed this, the product cycle and speed the, increase the rapidity with which innovation enters the system. To put it somewhat bluntly, this kind of production lowers the barrier to entry for innovators. And I would argue that the American economy happens to be dominant globally in innovation, particularly in new product design. Let me give you a quick example, then I'll talk about China for five minutes, and then I'll turn it over to you. So just a quick example. I work with a company today, not, not, not on a consulting basis, but a research basis. I work with a company today that has its origins at, at MIT. Um, so this company is in the renewable energy space. They, they, they have a particular design for a new kind of wind turbine. Very interestingly, the people who started this company, they're not from the energy sector. So it's not the traditional model of 
big integrated energy companies, they do energy, in a, in energy innovation. These are a few people from the aerospace industry who happen to know something about um, turbine blades for jet engines. But they have knowledge that can transfer to wind turbines. So traditionally, it would have been very hard for them to get this innovation into a product because they're not part of the traditional energy industry. So what do these individuals do? They have a bunch of venture financing in the United States, and they've manufactured a prototype in the United States. In fact, in Massachusetts, there's a very high-end contract manufacturing capability in Massachusetts. Not many Massachusetts residents know about that, but it's quite, quite active. At the same time, and here this gets rather interesting, the company has taken a bunch of its R&D that needs to be done on materials is taking it to China. And why is it taking it to China? Because China has become such a global center for manufacturing assembly that there's now accumulated knowledge in China about materials. And not high-end knowledge about designing some kind of new carbon fiber, but rather knowledge about how existing materials can be converted very rapidly from a general design into a manufacturable design. So there we see specialization, dispersal of a series of activities, and a rather challenging issue of where really does the flag belong on these kinds of, of, of production processes. So but let's, let's think now about China for a moment before we try to plant the flag on who's doing what and who's, about, who's, who's, who's capturing the value. So what has the Chinese economy or the broader business ecosystem had to do to attract the, say, R&D tasks of an American innovator who wants materials R&D to happen. What has the Chinese economy had to do? Now, this is a, you know, it's a, a parlor discussion to some extent for us, but it's not a parlor discussion for, say, Mexicans today who wonder why it is that even after Mexico joined NAFTA, all of this contract manufacturing and deverticalized production didn't end up in Mexico. Why did it end up in China? And it's not a parlor discussion for Vietnamese, frankly, and not poorer than China. Why is it that their low wage advantage isn't attracting this kind of manufacturing assembly and R&D work, whereas China's is? And I'd argue that that gets us to the assumption about politics not really changing, but economics changing. Indeed, politics and institutions have changed very dramatically in China, and they've changed purposefully in China to accommodate this kind of deverticalized production that I've been talking about. If you turn the clock back 21 or 22 years, uh, some of you uh, were living in China. I was living in China 22 years ago. Some of you have far more, many of you have far more experience than I do and remember an earlier time. If you think about China 22 years ago, participation in deverticalized production would have been impossible. Oh, it would have been impossible in part because deverticalized production wasn't happening, but China would not have been capable of participating in that kind of production, even in the most simple, basic sense. Urban workers 22 years ago, primarily employed in state firms, Jobs were allocated. I was teaching at a Chinese university 22 years ago. I remember the thumbpaste system pretty well, where uh, graduates really didn't choose where they could go, but were assigned jobs by the university and assigned for life, and that was it for them. So a company 
like a Delta Electronics, a Taiwanese contract manufacturer, Foxconn, there's no way they could have accessed high-end engineering talent. There's no way they could have accessed low-end engineering talent in those days. There's no way they could have moved currency in and out of the country. There's no way they could have smoothly moved goods in and out of the country. And I say that because that system 22 years ago, while very poorly suited to participation in deverticalized production, was very well suited to political control. The citizen, particularly in urban areas, was in custody in some sense. Was economically dependent on the state in a way that was quite destructive to the economy, quite destructive to economic development, but very effective for political control. I think what's happened, for a variety of reasons we could talk about in the Q&A, is that a purposive choice really was made in the early 1990s to shift the Chinese developmental model away from a model that tried to preserve socialism and the kinds of control mechanisms that we knew 22 or 25 years ago, a shift away from that to a very aggressive um, grasp, really, or an embrace of deverticalized production, but without real knowledge of what deverticalized production was about. So who was asked, really, to fill in the blanks of what it was about? A bunch of foreign producers who came in, who reorganized the shop floor, who demanded certain institutional changes that would allow workers to enter the shop floor, who demanded certain changes in the curriculum of universities to allow high-end engineers to work in these uh, factories and companies that could accommodate deverticalized production, and in some sense to demand a series of institutional changes about the way the macroeconomy and finance money moved in China. The Chinese system could participate in deverticalized production in the way it does only because the establishment, the elites, basically, the establishment opened itself up, not to radicals and not to revolutionaries, but to people who could make these institutional changes happen. Whether those changes involved new curricula in universities, new ways of promoting faculty in universities, which in turn translate to new ways to train engineers, people who could write the rules for labor markets to allow flow of talent, away from indigenous companies and two companies that were often foreign-owned and involved in gold production. Expertise that could move into organizations like the People's Bank, who could manage a currency regime that, while we may not particularly like the current price at which foreign exchange is set in China, is a very different currency regime from that which existed 25 years ago. The establishment opened itself up to people who 22 years ago were busy spending their time trying to get out of China. I'd argue that in of itself is a very substantial political change. Not necessarily a good one, not necessarily a bad one, but a big one. So let me just conclude with a couple of points and then I'll, I'll open it up. So what, why, why should we really care about this story of deverticalization and dislocation and a China that's, that's changed itself internally much more aggressively, I'd argue, than Mexico or Vietnam or a number of other developing or middle-income countries. Why should we care? Well, first place, this kind of global production model, while it is very dislocating and very confusing, it does open up incredible possibilities for innovation that didn't exist before, particularly the kinds of innovation which, I think, will contribute to resolving the big problems we face today in areas like energy 
and the environment. I can talk more in the Q&A about exactly what kinds of innovations I'm talking about. But in some respects, while we pay some cost to China's development on the innovation front, we face new opportunities. Second point, many of the problems that we face in the United States today, they are very real, undoubtedly. So income disparities, unemployment, decline in certain kinds of employment, like in manufacturing and the issues of, of education and training that come, those are very real issues. Their connection to China is tenuous at best. There are far better and stronger explanations for what these problems are and what's driving them than simply a pointing to China. Whether we like China or, or hate China, moreover, there are, there are options for our own society. We are not bound to follow certain paths because of a, either an economic challenge or an economic counterpart rising in other parts of the world. To put it somewhat differently, there are a variety of social and institutional options among advanced industrial countries. There's Germany as an option, there's France as an option. Not all of them have chosen similar institutional responses to the kind of challenge that China represents to the extent we believe it represents a challenge. But just the last point. I happen to believe, I'm sure in fact, that political change in China has happened over the last 20 years, maybe 30 years. There's no doubt in my mind that that's an empirical fact. I happen to believe that the trajectory of change, and this certainly is debatable, the trajectory is actually quite positive. And that the trajectory, while not wholly the same as Taiwan's, one should avoid crude comparisons, although I'm about to make one. The trajectory, while not wholly the same as Taiwan's, doesn't look so different. And that there's a pattern of industrial change feeding into the change in the nature of establishment, feeding into the change in the nature of politics that I think is leading, has already led to a more pluralistic system, albeit one with many problems today, but I think is ultimately leading to a democratic system. And at the end of the day, I think that for all of the challenges, very real ones, that our current industrial revolution represents, and for all the challenges that China, as an embracer of that revolution, for all the challenges that China represents to us, to Mexico, and Vietnam, and everybody else, in some respect, the fact, or at least my belief, that this system is effectively converging politically to a series of norms which we espouse and which we reflect in our own society, I think that's a good outcome. And I'd be willing to invest in that outcome and encourage that outcome um, ultimately because I think it will benefit us and the next generation as well. I don't think that those rules that force foreigners to bring technology to China necessarily force or, or dictate technology transfer. Building something in China is a little different from transferring knowledge. But I, I do think that this is true. With many very sophisticated products today, and particularly ones that involve complicated systems, you know, like a civilian nuclear power plant or high voltage transmission, these big systems with a lot of different moving pieces, often those state-of-the-art systems end up getting deployed and then a whole bunch of R&D happens. 
In other words, that the R&D really only happens, the real development happens only after the system is deployed. So I think many Chinese efforts, governmental efforts, at indigenous innovation are a bust and a waste. But the fact that that system today, on a procurement basis, is buying the latest and greatest technologies and deploying them at scale. You know, anybody who's gone on the high-speed rail system in China or anybody who's seen some of the power plants that are being built, China is buying state-of-the-art stuff. And what that means is state-of-the-art R&D is happening now geographically in China. Not necessarily by Chinese players, but it's happening geographically in China. It won't surprise me that unless we, it won't surprise me that unless, or if, only if we change our own policies here in the U.S. and our own procurement strategies and our own willingness to spend on infrastructure, we will then be importing a number of technologies from China. If not geographically, or if not in a corporate sense, at least geographically. Our unwillingness in the United States, at least in the current climate, it's not about one party versus the other, but our general unwillingness to invest in high-end infrastructure, I think will hurt us competitively down the road and will, if not stifle, it will change the nature of innovation and change where American innovators have to go to do their job. What's high-end infrastructure? What do I mean by high-end infrastructure? For example, civilian nuclear power or high-speed rail or high-voltage transmission. Um, public transportation urban, in an urban setting, so it's that kind of stuff. Or, uh, to some extent, high-end information technology systems, although there I think we've actually done pretty well, and much better than we have on the more physical infrastructure, more big-picture physical infrastructure. And how do you respond to the, you know, you say the jobs don't, you know, they stay in China because, you know, of what has got this transformation that is occurring, the political transformation and deverticalization. Um, Many of your colleagues say they stay in China because the currency is artificially uh, deflated and that that really is the reason that they would move to Vietnam, Indonesia, and other places if they had a currency that was realistically valued. It's not a crazy argument. It could be true. We'll see what happens as Chinese currency liberalizes over the long run, which I, I think it will. I'm going to happen tomorrow, but I think it will happen over the long run. But I must say when I... Most of my work is done, most of my research is done with uh, companies. You know, I spend a lot of time on the shop floor. And uh, so companies, primarily the companies that are doing most of the manufacturing assembly in China, what we associate with low-end manufacturing assemblies, so you know, Taiwanese contract manufacturers who are assembling this kind of stuff with a power supply for my computer, they don't tell that story. And they don't tell it in, in the following sense. So, um, well, I won't name names, but most of these companies, they do have some production in Vietnam. And they have the capability to move activities, not just to Vietnam, but also to Pakistan or a variety of other uh, low-wage environments. But what they say is that for the, for the truly um, timely kind of state-of-the-art activity, they can't move that stuff. Why not? Well, let me just give you a concrete example. So back to the power supply, the little power brick that we all use. Very low-end product by some estimates. So a company like Delta Electronics, big Taiwanese contract manufacturer, they receive from Apple and a number of other customers specs every year, sometimes twice a year, sometimes every two years, for a smaller and smaller power supply. In order to deliver 
that smaller and smaller power supply, they have to do a bunch of product development. Much of that has to be done near the factory floor for a variety of reasons. So these, these Taiwanese contract manufacturers, which we associate sort of as, or think of as sweatshops, and, and in some respects they, they may be in certain parts of their production, they also are managing in China a series of R&D labs, they're accessing top engineering talent, and they're wedding that talent to a series of lead factories some in Jiangsu, some in, 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 in Guangdong. And the lead production is happening in those environments. Then the excess capacity or the more established production they'll ship out to Vietnam. So for them, cost, particularly driven by things like wage, is only one small piece of the story. But manufacturing capability becomes a very substantial piece of the story in a way that's quite similar to what my one of my research subjects, that, aero, that, that wind turbine company, for the same reason that they're not just going to China for R&D work because it happens to be the cheap place to do it. They're going because that's where the knowledge is today. And there's a certain positive dynamic that's developed, for better or worse, with regard to us, there's a certain positive dynamic that develops. That kind of knowledge accumulates in China because of the sheer scale and scope of the activities going on in that narrow slice of production. But that ignores textiles, shoes, toys. Oh, quite, things, to, the, uh, quite to the contrary. Quite to the contrary. The reason where the why, know-how yeah. is really quite limited, oh, and I that it's fairly that. easily transferable so, to another country. Yeah, that's I mean, it, contract manufacturing. I mean, it's, yeah. the kinds of things you're talking about are more sophisticated than manufacturing of a of a, of a you know a T-shirt, a polo shirt, Absolutely. a pair of pants, uh, a toy. So that's absolutely right. But I, but I think my, resp- my response is to say it's not the sophistication of the physical product that necessarily drives where something is located. So yes, at one level I would say a t-shirt is a simpler product than a, a power supply, and a power supply is a much simpler product than a, a semiconductor. On the other hand, portions of t-shirt manufacturing high-end, high-fashion, have to be quite responsive to design, have to be flexible, have to do small batch production. So in China, we see the concentration of a lot of that higher-end production, where the the tacit knowledge is in the kind of linkages between the designers and the producers, the shop floor and the whatever, as opposed to just the fabrication of this product. The lower-end production of t-shirts and things does move off to Vietnam and and, and, and Pakistan and a bunch of other places. So the the Caribbean, for for a variety of reasons, regulatory reasons, others, and and I think that the one of the important messages of this question, much more important than the question rather than my answer, is that uh, to the extent economies in this deverticalized world uh, uh, lose steam, or to the extent economies stop moving and constantly trying to upgrade, they're dead. They're really dead. So the, the story in China, I don't think, for all of its many faults of that system, the story for the most part hasn't been an effort to, to lock in certain kinds of production. I think the story has been an, uh, an effort, sometimes successfully, to lock in certain kinds of capabilities. And capabilities which allow a certain kind of upgrading from you know, one kind of production to another. And so a system that can sustain kind of the movement from one kind of t-shirt manufacturing to another and then lose it to Vietnam and have those workers move up into another area, that's a dynamic system. 
to the extent China is dynamic, again, for the millions of problems in that economy, to the extent it is dynamic, I think it's been largely its dynamism has been largely driven by a series of foreign companies which have kind of piloted and 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 guided this upgrading process. Delta, for example, the company I referred to that does power supplies, yeah, they do a bunch of low-end power supplies and they fend off competition and they're quite locked in with Apple. But they have a lot of knowledge that's accumulated in the power supply business. And so where are they moving now? Electric cars. That's interesting. Very interesting. Owen? What do you do with the argument that is occasionally put forward that essentially uh, the profit margins in the manufacturing that China does are low and they get lower as uh, China, which is a very competitive place, becomes more competitive? Yeah. That the distribution and the upfront innovation and Steve Jobs thought of the thing you hold in your hand. Uh, that's where it counts because that's where the real money is. And the, if you look at it, China does use about 23% of the world's raw materials to make only 6% of its GDP, uh, which sort of indicates that it's doing a lot, but very inefficient. And uh, so, how's that going to succeed long term? It's not just a very perceptive question, but I think that's a question that captures a lot of the frustration in China. And not just among Chinese nationals per se, but also among some of the larger companies operating in China. So not the GMs or the the Boeings that are doing things, but the the Qantas and the Foxconns and the Acers. And I think that the, the story really is this, that many people in China not just the government that's pushing indigenous innovation, many people in China ask themselves, well, why is Nike making so much money on its sneakers, and we're assembling the sneakers but getting a small margin, or why is it that in this product we have such a, a small margin? And I think that there are, there are a couple of different answers to that, a couple of different pieces. So one piece is to say, well, you know, having a small margin is not the worst problem. You know, running a small margin business is not so bad as long as you have tremendous volume. So what some of the, I would argue, foreign, and, and to some extent some of the indigenous Chinese contract manufacturers, because that really is the kind of business that's going on for the most part in China, contract manufacturing, what they've been able to do in this deverticalized mode is to, is to achieve tremendous scale. And they achieve tremendous scale partly by locking in their relationship with a, an individual customer, an Apple or a Dell or whatever else, but generally they achieve huge scale by operating for a number, with locking relationships with a number of customers. So the sneaker manufacturer assembler will work for Nike and Adidas and Reebok simultaneously, and and the contract manufacturing electronics will work for Apple and Dell. In fact, if you go to the if you go to to Fox uh, Delta's labs, you'll see on the lab bench you'll see you know Apple's latest design sitting right next to Dell's, and I'm probably not supposed to see that, but um, <laughs> but you see it. And what that it's interesting. What that says is these companies that achieve tremendous 
scale and tremendous volume may be able to, to, to absorb certain kinds of knowledge from these other customers, but for sure one of their sources of competitive advantage is their ability to protect the property rights, really the intellectual property, the proprietary designs of each of these individual customers, which also explains partly why some of this industry doesn't just slip away to other countries which have proved less capable. That, that's just one piece. It's not that bad a business proposition for some of these companies. But I think the other piece is a, is a much more negative one for China, which is to say, you know, even though production has deverticalized, and even though certain kinds of knowledge has undoubtedly been developed in China and has migrated, arguably, from other places, it's still the Steve Jobs is of this world who are cracking the whip. And the contract manufacturer who's hanging on to the other end. Even worse, it's such a hard business just to hang on. You need a foreigner who's got a bunch of skills to hang on for you if you're Chinese. Now, I don't expect that to happen forever, but I think for a long time to come, producers in China are going to be hanging on to the end of the whip. The one exception, though, I think is in this area of large-scale infrastructure, where increasingly... I think we are going to see, we're already seeing it. Um, I don't think it's transfer of knowledge per se, but I think it's co-development of new designs, new technologies, often under a foreign corporate uh, organization, but co-development because these systems are present in China and they're not present anywhere else. Other questions? Yes? And I should do politics a little bit. Sure. Uh, recently, I agree with Steve, and that's why I really uh, uh, like to hear what you say. But uh, an American who has been in China for 20 years just asked me recently, he said, Charles, uh, is Putin Tao for real? Or, uh, I mean, not the, uh, the premier who just. Wen Jiao. And his style is very much like the election of our future. So they're worried about whether he is for real. What do you think? <laughs> no, he's not for real. Uh, no, that's not the, the answer. Uh, so the question, I think, gets to a broader issue about why are Chinese political leaders, Wen Jiabao in this particular case, using a particular kind of discourse about political change and the need for political change that seems kind of out of step with certain kinds of realities that we see in the, on the ground in China. So you know, the, the juxtaposition of, of, of Wen Jiabao talking about the need for political change, but the arrest, you know, the, the imprisonment, the continuing imprisonment of Liu Xiaobo, or, or say the, the juxtaposition of the Wen Jiabao um, uh, a commitment to political change at the same time that Reminer Bao is publishing editorials saying there'll be no, you know, we're holding a line, we're talking, we're 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 resisting the you know forces of, of change. What 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 are we supposed to make of that? For me, taking the what at least I think is the longer view, I think what's happened is that um, the embrace of global production, which I think really happened in the in the early 90s created a certain kind of dynamic it created a certain kind of demand for new expertise which entered the system at the same time it undercut a lot of the traditional economic controls that the government was able to exert 
against its citizenry. That combination, I feel, led to a, an interesting and somewhat open-ended dynamic. On the one hand, traditional elites have to find some way to legitimize their rule. Now, in any kind of political system, legitimacy, abstract as it is, has a, a two-part component. On the one hand, there's got to be some way for the for the people at the top of the political hierarchy to be to be bound, you know, not to not to rule completely arbitrarily. It's questionable in China to what degree the top has been bound. But there's another piece of this. For a system to operate, somehow citizens on an everyday basis, they've got to be they've got to be put in a situation where they're willing to comply voluntarily where they're willing to show up for work and uh, not resist and basically play along and I think in China citizens um, although there are certainly plenty of people who are not happy for the most part they have been complying and why is that? I think traditional elites have offered them a series of steps they've offered them a a continually evolving bargain. A continually evolving bargain, which may have started with, okay, now you don't have to believe anything. You don't even have to say you believe anything. Now simply you just have to shut up and accept national economic growth. And that lasted for a while. But it, it had a kind of obsolescent quality to it as well. And then the bargain became, you know, it's not just that we'll deliver national growth. Um, you still have to shut up. Say whatever you want. Privately, you can't politically. But now it's not just about national growth. We've done that. But now we have to deliver growth that benefits you individually as a citizen. Well, that's that's ambitious, and that lasted for a while, but obsolesced. And then these elites increasingly began to speak in rather abstract terms about middle class society or a, a moderately wealthy society, depending on how you you translate. Shall come show way. All these harmonious society, which are abstract, but which leave all kinds of space for new definitions. At the same time all that's going on, you have a somewhat dynamic change in the composition of the elite. It's not that necessarily John Locke or Thomas Jefferson all of a sudden begins to run China, but you have people increasingly, if not running the show, manning the upper level technocratic um, bureaucracy who didn't come up through the traditional political system and weren't promoted on the basis of traditional loyalty. And increasingly, their voice is contributing to this overall debate. And they, too, are connecting through the media and other vectors to ordinary citizens. I find that to be um, a dynamic and rather open-ended kind of process. And I guess I would say that ten years ago, had you asked me, what changes would China's elite tolerate 10 years from now? I would never have predicted the current series of changes. In part because I think elites then had no way to anticipate the problems that they would face and they responded somewhat positively to those changes. But the other piece is the composition of the elites changed. That, there's no technological reason why that has to happen. There's no deterministic story about why that has to happen. There are many countries in this world that haven't done that. There are many places that haven't been as flexible, that haven't been as willing to adapt and haven't been willing effectively, as I say in the book, to kind of throw the dice 
and see what happens and keep promising and promising and promising that the Chinese political economy not benevolently or not, you know, not with the goodness of a bunch of leaders' hearts but that that system has been willing to, to throw the dice and do it repeatedly I think is uh, jaw-dropping and needs to be explained and if it's not recognized in the U.S. it is recognized in places that are really feeling the squeeze like Mexico at the higher end for China or Vietnam at the lower end, they see the political challenge as well as the economic. Um, the U.S. still, in many respects, has a technological advantage because of our superior institutions like MIT, but gradually it seems like we're losing that competitive edge. In fact, largely because uh, the most brilliant graduate students from places like China are going back. How long do you think the U.S. can maintain this technological uh, edge? Or, you know, in a few years, are the Chinese going to be yeah. dominant in this respect? Uh, I, I, I don't intend to answer a question with a question, but I'm just uh, curious. Do, do you have in mind sort of a specific measure for this idea that we're losing the technological edge. I mean, I could provide some for you, but... but well, I, I think one would be in uh, solar panels and yeah. wind turbines. Uh, the, the Chinese seem to be way ahead of us in, in developing those. Right, so I'm not... Um, I, I'm agnostic about in what sense the Chinese, broadly speaking, are ahead. It's clearly the case that um, in fabrication of a number of these items, a number of these products, there's a lot more of it going on in China. There are at least two different explanations for why that's the case. One explanation is the knowledge really has moved over there and they're able to take that knowledge and you know, do it cheaper or better or whatever else, and that may be the case. Another explanation for some of these products is that um, these products have become standardized, and Chinese manufacturers, whether they're foreign-owned or not, have a particular ability, a proven ability, to take uh, production processes and actually speed their standardization and sort of codify them. And what that, what that does is it lowers the price very dramatically for customers. It lowers the barriers to entry for producers. So it, it, solar panels are, are, are a really good example of this because now the market is saturated in China, the, the production market. So you have a bunch of firms doing this and they are killing each other on the competitive front. And, and so in the government, interesting, I find, I don't necessarily agree with this view, but for the, the policy planners who are very interested in, in indigenous innovation, they don't like the solar panel industry. Their, their attitude is, oh, that's a terrible industry, way too competitive, way too standardized. That's not where we want to pump our money. You know, we'd rather do it in an area where there's truly proprietary knowledge. Now, I'm not sure that's the right conclusion on that part, but I'm pretty sure that that's a widespread attitude in the Chinese system. But I think there's a... Um, there's just two other points I want to I want to raise about that. I think it is the case that um, production capabilities, including knowledge, have ramped up substantially in China. I'm not sure that the knowledge, however, has truly transferred to a bunch of indigenous producers. So, as I said earlier, in many cases, the knowledge-intensive pieces of these products. Whether it's you know the apple thing or or a number of things like wind turbines, the knowledge-intensive piece is often held by a foreigner, 
and often purchased on a licensing basis by the Chinese producer. A producer, we talked about this a little bit earlier, a producer who once that producer purchases the licensed product sometimes has incentives to stifle indigenous innovation in China to the extent it becomes a source of competition. On the other hand, just the, the last point, there is a rapid upgrading of, of not just knowledge in China, but the of the, the sort of mechanisms that produce knowledge, there's no doubt that the Chinese university system is um, upgrading in ways nobody would have expected 10 years ago. There's no doubt that the standards for promotion in Chinese universities have changed, that the composition of faculty, that the nature of curricula has changed. And if you're, if you're not sure about it, again, go to the other countries that are having trouble competing with China. I'm not persuaded, though, I'm willing to believe, but I'm not persuaded that China has really gained ground on on um, the U.S. broadly speaking. And how do you know the high-end talent in China that's coming out of Chinese undergraduate undergraduate institutions still is going to the U.S. for the most part for graduate education? And then they're going back to China. Yeah, so that's right, and that's why I think you know it, it's an open-ended question whether in in going back. They transfer knowledge. They create a new kind of production system. That is, that's an open-ended question, and they are going back. Oh, no, we're over here first, and then there. And then got a lot of questions. Then um, you said that ten years ago, the political leaders in China would not have believed that they changed the way they have changed. Except, because I had this discussion twelve years ago with yeah. a few younger ones. Yeah. Except when there is a selfish benefit. Yeah. And if someone had said, your kids or you will benefit as you change, and maybe you'll change slower than Taiwan, but similarly, they would have accepted it. And they did. Yeah. And intellectually they accepted it. They didn't say it's going to happen. They said, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. So in that sense, really, there's no difference between the development of China now and the development of the United States 245 years ago. We used to take products, give them to the British and send them back. And one day someone said, you know, I can do some of that. I don't have to send them all. All that stuff. I'll do this part of the contract manufacturing of blue jeans right. or textiles. Yeah. So I don't think it's very different from what's happened elsewhere. Well, I have to... No other country's ever had a billion three people mobilized as quickly. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah the the scale the pace I think is different. But I actually agree with you that we, in many cases, academics at least, have a highly abstracted notion of how economic development happens. It's sort of a textbook notion. It tends to be a a pretty positive notion. Of course it's positive because the people writing these textbooks are all beneficiaries of development. You know, but me, for example, I didn't work in a sweatshop. Uh, you know, I didn't work in a job that really didn't require much knowledge but required a lot of elbow grease. My grandparents did. Um, two of whom had, had no had no had no high school degree and all of whom had no college degree. So I I haven't lived that experience, but I think in the, in the American developmental experience, not that it's the same as China's, but we have many of the, much of the ugliness, some of the successes, and that there are, I think, certain 
pathways that they're very ambiguous in terms of positive or negative, but there are certain pathways which pretty much everybody goes through in one way or another. I think your first point is very interesting about the arguably the, the willingness of elites to, to, to stomach or contemplate some of these changes, even to the extent they understood them 10 or 12 Especially years ago. Especially came here and took the ideas back. Yeah, so, so, so that interests me because I don't think that... Um, that that is a that's a sort of a necessary response. So that's a response we see across the board among various political leaders. To, to put it a bit differently, people in political power in any system, but particularly in authoritarian systems, can think about how to maintain power, how to maintain their self-interest in a variety of ways. They can uh, try to prevent change. They can try to lock in their existing authority and capture all kinds of rents. Or they can think about ways to ensure, even in the most venal ways, to ensure that they can continue capturing rents as the economy transforms. Uh, what's striking to me in China is not that this has all of a sudden become some great law-abiding place or that this is a brilliant model for rule of law. It's not. Uh, but rather the degree to which those in power have been flexible in the ways that they've served their own interests even as they've allowed institutional transformation to take place and even serve their own pecuniary interests or their children's pecuniary interests. In other words, they found ways to benefit from change and from pushing change rather than found ways to benefit by forestalling change. And you know, actually I think, uh, well we could debate whether that fits the American model, I think it does. It certainly fits the model of other East Asian developmental states. Over time. So we've got three questions. They ask the three questions in a row, and then, yeah, no, I'll, I'll be very and then we'll allow um, Ed to answer whichever ones he chooses. Okay, <laughs> 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 one, two. Oh, Patricia, that's a, wasn't there somebody behind? Was it? We'll get to one, two, three, and then, but be very quick because <laughs> we have to end. My observation in China, people always talking about globalization because in the growing stage, a lot of people are very excited to be a part of the global stage. In the United States, um, I hear people talk about U.S. China relations. It's always about our U.S. and China's interests are separated. Um, I grew up in China, I like U.S., I like China. But the question yeah. being, literally, we've got to keep yeah. it 30 seconds each. Value was created by the fact that we were willing to buy 
um, as well to the extent that it's being transferred to China and that there is increasing wealth in China. And potentially that could mean that the face of the consumer is becoming increasingly Chinese. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that knowledge and the value of knowledge could potentially be affected by that change of the consumer face?
on specialization in assembly can shift to a very different kind of innovation or innovative capacity, which is product definition and design. I, I think it's very hard to duplicate what a Quanta or you know, Foxconn does in assembling this. I would argue it's even harder to do what an Apple does. And Apple won't be doing it for very long. Apple will be a dinosaur as well. But I'm willing to bet that for a, for, for a time to come, it's going to be an American company or a Japanese company or a German company that replaces Apple rather than a Chinese company. I don't necessarily wish that to be the case, but I think that hurdle is the toughest one. It's not necessarily being helped by the way the Chinese economy is structured today.